Well, friend, let's pray as uh, we come to God's word this morning. Loving Heavenly Father, please help us to see Jesus clearly in this psalm and love him more deeply as a result of spending this time together in your word here today. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Well, friends, I want to do three things this morning. Firstly, I want to give a bit of cultural background so we can understand what this psalm meant uh, in its original context. Secondly, I want us to see how directly and powerfully this psalm points us to Jesus. And thirdly, I want to then look back at Psalm 2 with a, a Jesus lens, if you like, and see how it speaks to us as Jesus' followers and how it shows us uh, what we might do in response. So please keep your Bibles open. We'll be in Psalm 2 lots and lots and lots. And thanks, Ian, for reading it uh, so well. It begins, Why do the nations rage? Uh, conspire and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band against the, together against the Lord. See how the Lord is in little capitals? Uh, that's kind of the, the NIV way of translating God's covenant name Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. That's who all these people are picking a fight with. And who else are they opposing? See the end of verse 2? And against his anointed one. The Hebrew word there is Messiah. Messiah. It literally means anointed one. Uh, Now it's easy for us to jump straight to Jesus right there, isn't it? (laughs) We'll just hold off for a moment because Messiah was actually used to refer to whoever was king of Israel uh, and sometimes even priests and prophets of Israel as well. But the, uh, the point here is that uh, when a new king takes the throne, all the people, the rulers of surrounding kings, they're eager to test him out, try and change the balance of power. Kind of like handball in the school playground. You know, when you get to that top spot, you've got the biggest target on your back. Everyone's trying to get you out. So in verse 3, says, let us break their chains, throw off their fetters or, or shackles. In other words, let's free ourselves of this ruler and carve out our own destiny. It's a case of rule or be ruled. Now, it's not a smart approach when your opponent is God, is it? Note how his response to, to this uh, escalates in seriousness in verses 4 and 5. Laughs, scoffs, rebukes, terrifies. Now it's not the laugh of humour but of incredulity. How can they be serious? He scoffs at their arrogance. He's not answerable to them. The exact opposite is true. This is the one true God who created everything that exists and gives life and sustains life by his power. And they want to take him on and overthrow him. It can only end badly, can't it? Now, of course, Yahweh could wipe them all out, couldn't he? In an instant, his anger can flare up in a moment, as it says further down. But what we see most often in the scriptures is that he's gracious 
and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. And see what he does in response. Verse 6. He has installed the king of his choosing on the throne, ruling from Zion. Zion's you know, the top of the hill where Jerusalem is built geographically, where the temple was built. But symbolically, it's God's place of rule among his people. So what have we got so far? The people don't want God, but God has given the people a king to rule them. Let's have a look at what that king says in verse 7. The new king speaks, uh, quoting God, You are my son, today I have become your father. Again, it's so easy to jump to Jesus, isn't it? But this phrase was also used about uh, kings descended, particularly from David. Um, At one point, it was uh, used of the whole nation of Israel. But the point here is God has chosen to have a very special family relationship with his people. And he's placed his king to rule them. When we get to verses 8 and 9, the psalm really is pushing beyond the immediate historical contrast. The boundaries are just being blasted out. King David was great. And through him, uh, Israel became great. And the inheritance that it mentions there uh, was the promised land. But, But look at the boundaries here. Encompassing the nations. Right out to the ends of the earth. This line really is pushing us forward to a much greater future king. And then the total power described in verse 9, well, that only had patchy fulfillments even in Israel's heyday. It leaves us looking forward. And then the psalm concludes by warning the kings and rulers of the earth and all the people that they represent to respond to this great God-chosen king in a wise way. And what would that look like? Verse 11. Serve this king, celebrate his reign, and kiss him. Submit to his uh, authority. Three great acts of humility for anyone, especially if you're a king of the earth or a ruler on earth. And yet this is the wise and appropriate response. Now, in Middle Eastern culture, a kiss uh, was and still is a very important sign of, of mutual respect and friendship. That's why when you see the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, it's such a ghastly act, isn't it? Now I'm jumping to Jesus. Um, look, at, look at the last line. Let's just finish going through it. Look at the last line. After describing this king with total power and global dominion, The writer says, blessed are all who take refuge from him. Oh, hang on. Is that what it says? In him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The only place to find safety and security is not hiding from him. We can't do that. Is by hiding in him. We can't hide him in this life, hide from him in this life or the life to come. Our choice is not if we will face him, 
but how we will face him. Because it will either be as an enemy who will be crushed and dashed to pieces like pottery, or as a friend and and servant and subject who will be blessed, complete wholeness and well-being, receiving his favour. What would you choose? What do your attitudes and your actions suggest you are already choosing? Well, how do we see Christ in this psalm? There's a few obvious ones already, isn't there? Uh, Like him being called God's son. Uh, We see that dozens of times through the gospel. Let me just pick one, the classic Matthew 16, verse 16, where Peter finally connects all the dots and he blurts out, You are the Messiah. Yeah, literally anointed one. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter said it again in Acts 13. We heard some of it read to us just a little bit further on. Peter says this, We tell you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. So what Peter's saying there is that what was spoken in Psalm 2 is now being fulfilled in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews picks up that same verse and quotes it word for word to explain how Jesus is far greater than any high priest in the Old Testament. That's in chapter 5, verse 5, if you're taking notes. He uses that same verse back in chapter 1, verse 5, to say that Jesus is greater than even any angelic being. It's unmistakable that that Jesus is the king that God has placed on the throne that Psalm 2 is telling us all about. Now, remember how all the kings and rulers responded to that king in Psalm 2? They gathered against him, didn't they? Listen to what Peter and John pray in Acts chapter 4. Just after they've been released from prison because they're telling people about Jesus, listen to what they say in their prayer. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? You know where that comes from, right? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. He's quoting straight out of verse 2. Indeed, now listen to how he interprets it. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with all the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They're seeing Psalm 2 in quite a bit of detail as being fulfilled at that very moment. But that was only the beginning of the fulfillment because opposition to God and his enthroned King Jesus has continued down through the centuries and still rages today. I uh, read on a missionary website that uh, more people have been murdered for following Jesus in the last 100 years than in the previous 1900 added together. That's phenomenal. But it won't go on forever. 
In Revelation, there's a final battle scene, Revelation 19, and Jesus pictured on, on a horse. And Revelation 19, verse 19 says this, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. It's Psalm 2 again, isn't it? All of these opposition to Jesus. And who can tell me in that chapter? Does anyone know what Jesus is called in that chapter? King of King of Kings. It's exactly the picture we've got in Psalm 2. And Revelation 19 then quotes Psalm 2 verse 9 saying that he, Jesus, will rule them with an iron scepter to show that Jesus will one day crush all who oppose him once and for all. And then there will be peace. And don't we long for that. It's exactly what Psalm 2 has told us. No matter how many kings and rulers the world may produce, there is only one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His name is Jesus Christ. Let's see verse 10 there. Uh, Someone said to me years ago, whenever you see a therefore, always ask what it's there for. This is the point in the psalm, the turning point, where the writer turns from, uh, from explanation to application. He explains our response. If this is true, then this is what we've got to do. That's where we are in the movement of the psalm. So let's look at Psalm 2 with, with our Jesus lens now and see how we fit into it properly. In verses 1 to 9, that's the explanation. Tell me, in the psalm, who is on the side of God and his anointed king? No one. No one. The truth is, by ourselves, none of us are on God's side. We might think we should be. We may even feel pretty good about ourselves and uh, imagine that we are on his side. But the truth is, none of us on our own, by ourselves, are for God. In fact, we're against him. Now, isn't that exactly what the Bible tells us elsewhere? Isaiah said, there is no one who is righteous, not one. Paul wrote to the Romans, all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. Our actions show that we we hate his rule. That sounds harsh. But let me explain. See, every time you sin, you're saying, I don't want you to rule me right now in this particular situation. I'll do it my way. Break the chains. Throw off the shackles. Fight against the king. And so we find ourselves in the exact same position as the enemies of God and his anointed king in this psalm. So God's word to them in verses 10 to 12, the response bit, is equally God's word to us today. The only difference is this. We know exactly who the king is. 
It's Jesus Christ. So let's reflect on these closing verses, the application, uh, and see how we are to respond to King Jesus. The wise response is to serve him, celebrate his reign, and surrender to him. That's what the kiss bit means. Now, see, if we don't, if we remain in our opposition and maintain our resistance to him, what will happen? Look at verse 12. You'll be destroyed in your way. Of course, there's the ultimate destruction of, of hell and being separated from God's loving presence forever. But it's, but it's more than that. In your way, we experience the gradual destruction of our heart and soul because whatever we place in our hearts instead of King Jesus will fail to satisfy us. There's no refuge from the king. There's only refuge in the king. And it's not until we serve him, celebrate his reign and surrender to him that we discover what life was always meant to be. I think we all desperately want two things in life. We all want a reason to get out of bed in the morning you know, some kind of sense of meaning or purpose in life. And we all want to know that we're loved. I mean, like, really, we want to know that we're loved. And King Jesus meets these needs of our heart. When we serve him, we discover meaning and purpose. He's actually, he's already got works prepared in advance for us to do. He has a good, pleasing and perfect will for our lives. When we serve him, we discover that that's what life was meant to be all about all along. And it's not cold duty either. We are to celebrate his reign. One of the characteristics of Christians, unlike other religions, is a deep inner joy because Jesus is our king. Our king. Personally, my king. Your king. You can look at this in two ways. It's a joy. We can celebrate it because he is such a great king. And now that he's my king, I am blessed. I am secure. I am loved. He is my refuge. Or you could look at the other side of the coin. It's a joy because I'm such a bad king of my own life. And it's a relief. To finally have Jesus as my king. Yet all those other things that I were trying to put on the throne instead of Jesus didn't work either. Just led to disappointment and dissatisfaction. But now I've got King Jesus. That is worth celebrating. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. But I think one of the reasons we lose our joy and we stop celebrating is because we forget how bad it is outside the oasis of Jesus' grace and love. We've lost our first love and our hearts so easily become lukewarm. What, what comes to mind when you hear the word refuge? Perhaps a desert oasis like the one on the screen? I love that. Springs of water, trees with shade in the midst of a harsh, dry desert. Or perhaps a storm shelter with, with warm blankets and light and food amidst a raging natural disaster outside. 
Now, our sin was leading us to death and destruction. But in his mercy, Jesus took that destruction for us on the cross. And he was raised to life as king over all. We are blessed when we take refuge in him. If I had a joyometer, and I was kind of just aiming it around the room, you know, when it was on your heart, would it be beeping nice and loudly? If not, maybe, maybe you're struggling with the third application in these verses. We must serve him. We must celebrate his reign. And the third thing is we must surrender to King Jesus. And so often I think we treat Jesus not as a king, but as a consultant. We love options and his voice becomes one voice among many voices in our hearts and our heads. And who's calling the shots? Who's making the final decision? We are. Who's on the throne? I am. God says, don't lie, don't steal, don't lust, respect your parents, forgive others, and so on and so on and so on. And we obey when it's convenient. And we throw off the fetters, get rid of the shackles when it's not. If we say, I'll obey if it feels good, I'll obey if it's popular, I'll obey if it's pragmatic, I'll obey if everyone else obeys. We're not really obeying at all, are we? Jesus is not, our, he's not in our heart as king. He's just in our head as consultant. If we're deciding who to forgive, who to help, who to sleep with, it doesn't work that way. He does not. He will not operate like that. He is king. He is our king. And if we choose any other way, it will lead to our own destruction. That way ends in destruction. Unless we're actively seeking his heart and mind through his word that he's given us and relying him in daily prayer, the likelihood is we'll be Christians in name and pagans by practice. So friends, let me sum up. We have a king. His name is Jesus. By our own, we, we hate the king and we fight against his rule in our hearts. But God calls us to serve, celebrate and surrender. And when we do, when we do, we are blessed because by his death and resurrection, he has become our refuge in life now and forever. Amen.